Welcome back, everybody. We've got Dr. Michael Fenster with us today, author of multiple books such as Food Shaman, Eating Well, Living Better, uh, Ancient Eats, and more. Of course, he's got a column on psychology today that you can check out as well. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's great to have you. I'm incredibly curious about the work that you're doing. And as I was reading through a lot of your stuff here, um, naturally, I had questions. For example, like we could start with culinary medicine. And I said, I've never heard this before. What is culinary medicine? Um, please well, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I teach culinary medicine. Actually, that's the discipline I teach at the University of, of Montana, among the other things I do. Um uh, and we have a very kind of prolonged academic, uh, you know, definition, multidisciplinary, evidence-based, et cetera. But, you know, the, the long and the short of it for the, the listeners yourself is culinary medicine is really about your relationship to the foods you eat. And by relationship, we mean all aspects, uh, you know, sort of from soil to sup. So, we look at things that impact our health and our relationship with food, including how the food is grown. So is this a conventionally produced product? Is it uh, grown via the methods of regenerative agriculture? How is it harvested? Uh, very importantly, how, how does uh, it get to our plate? Meaning, is it sort of from the farm to our plate, the way nature brought it to us? Is it an ultra processed product, which is Unfortunately, what most people eat in this country uh, and even moving beyond just what we eat to how we eat, with whom we eat, when we eat, where we eat, etc. It turns out all these things have impacts uh, in, on our health and our aspects of our relationship with food. And so that's really where we focus on culinary medicine as opposed because people always say, oh, culinary medicine, you know, I'm really interested in nutrition. And I'm like, well, thanks. <laughs> uh, but, you know, nutrition is, is really a specific discipline that's focused on biological and physiological processes concerned with how an organism uses food to survive. And that's kind of it. Um, that's certainly part of what we look at, but it's by no means the whole picture. I mean, just saying nutrition uh, is the important thing, the only thing in our relationship with food and health. Um, you know, it's to me that kind of approach is like saying, well, um, our re relationship uh, with sex is simply a about a biological imperative to procreate. Right. I mean, sex has like sunk empires, uh, love and, <laughs> and, and compassion and, and the human experience. And and all these things go into a relationship of which intimacy and sex is a part of. Um, that's what that's how we look at, at our relationship with food versus, you know, somebody saying, well, you know, I, I watched the uh, PBS documentary and it's all about just, a, you know, once a year they procreate and that that's it. See you later. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a very um, broader, much more, I would say, even holistic approach. And in many respects, um, I think it's really needed. And, and, and finally, you know, the thing I'd add is that it's really old, right? It's nothing new. Uh, this is how our ancestors and forebears had a relationship with food. It, in, in our uh, current time, it still is. But if we really look back to the history of humankind, food was a, a very important form of social currency. 
right? When I go and look back in history, I see that uh, um, the frequency of meals were not as many. The, um, the, the food was as wholesome as it gets. Uh, and through, uh, through design and through necessity, right, we, we have uh, conventionalized the production of all food. As you said, this is how most people eat. For years, I've, uh, I've been watching and observing the, the many illnesses that plague a society like ours that has abundance, abundance of everything, um, uh, including uh, medical attention and care. Uh, so the thought was, well, why is this happening when we have so much? Uh, and the thought was, the thought process led me down thinking about what are the commonalities that we all are exposed to. We are nearly breathing the same air, exposed to the same water that's chemically treated, uh, and finally the food. That's the one common denominator that connects a lot of these things, uh, and so it inevitably that was the question like is this making us sicker and and we don't and we don't know it or we don't want to acknowledge that it could be the food well i think also um we haven't been given that information um and there's a number of reasons for that so you know i've been doing culinary medicine for over a decade um and boy i i tell you you know there's been a lot of pushback in those early years uh, but a lot of the information has, you know, um, and things that I predicted have come true. And so we're, we're gaining momentum, as it were. So, you know, one of the simple reasons is we were ignorant. We didn't know what we didn't know. Uh, and, and you made an important point when you talked about how food has changed. Well, you know, really, since World War II, after World War II is when we really accelerated the changes um, both in our culture, we became a bit of a convenience culture and right. our attitudes towards food changed, um, right? Then it, it became kind of uh, uncool to be in the kitchen and cooking because that was drudgery, right? It was all about leisure time and, you know, getting out in your car and going through the drive through and, and, and getting your food and uh, TV dinners and, and cakes and box, box mixes and things like that. And that's really accelerated and become a huge industry, I might add, uh, worldwide. And and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, there's kind of a confluence of things. And one of the the starting points in our culinary medicine approach is with these ultra processed foods that you bring up. But I'll tell you an interesting story of, of how uh, what we use is called the NOVA classification, uh, not an acronym, just NOVA. Uh, and it was actually developed at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Uh, not in the United States for a number of reasons we could talk about, but the, as the story goes behind it, uh, you know, decades ago, Brazil became what we call an emerging economy. And so that means that their population all of a sudden had more money. And so when people have more money, uh, many U.S. Uh, corporations, including Big Soda, Big Snack, Big Food, said, hey, here's potential customers. So they started opening up and distributing their wares in Brazil. And what some of the people in Brazil noticed, uh, particularly some of the scientists was, how come we're all getting fat and having heart attacks all of a sudden? <laughs> uh, we go, what's this about? We've never seen this before. Never, it's and never so, happened. And so they actually sent, as the story goes, I, I wasn't there firsthand, uh, their representative to the United Nations to talk to the US representative at the United Nations and say, can you get these guys out of here? Because they're literally killing us. 
And of course, the U.S. media is like, dude, you know, it's a free market economy. What can I tell you? We don't we don't own them. We don't control them. You got to deal with it. And so that really spurred some of the early research um, subsequently developed by Professor Carlos Montiero and his colleagues out of the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, to classify food, not by how much saturated fat, is it a red meat, whatever, um, because our food has been so altered, those categories and descriptions don't really apply uh, to the choices that we have. But he looked at it uh, and in a simple way, is it ultra processed, which are certain criteria that we could discuss later, uh, or is it not? And when you look at ultra processed food, you find a very powerful correlation uh, to your risk of diabetes, heart disease, obesity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so powerful that this has been adopted by the United Nations, by countries like France, uh, which is just the, this year completed a study looking at trying to reduce ultra-processed food uh, consumption in their population, Middle Eastern countries, vetted in many studies around the world. Um, but really a lot of pushback here in the States for obvious reasons, when you consider that 70% of the average American's diet are those ultra-processed foods. Right. Um, you know, I didn't know that happened in Brazil, but I do know that there was another case very similar to it in Kuwait, um, oil, oil rich country, citizens are pretty much, you know, they're made for life if they're born within the within the country. And um, as their wealth soared, uh, soared, so did their disposable income. And guess who started emerging? KFC and Pizza <laughs> Hut. And um, shortly after that, I think this story broke in 2015 is when I first um, learned about what was going on in Kuwait, because if we think about Middle Eastern countries and how they used to eat, it's very healthy food. Um, and uh, some of these diseases didn't even exist. But then you fast forward and they started emerging. And you say, so you got to you got to ask yourself, um, what's in this stuff? What's in these ultra processed foods that are creating so much illness in uh, in society? And ultimately, yeah, it, it goes back to the massive interests, the, the profit uh that uh, cannot be ignored from the consumption of these products and uh, the convenience factor, which is unavoidable because um, I don't remember the figures, but we are talking multi-billion dollar industries annually, uh, just fast food alone. So drive-thros and the like. Oh, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, if right. not trillions. Uh, when we look at the, the global market here, and we look at these huge conglomerates, uh, these few conglomerates uh, that are really the big players behind it with, you know, multiple brands. Um, I mean, if you look at the um, profits, uh, gross profits of McDonald's, if it was a country, now we're, we're not talking all fast, but we're just talking McDonald's. If it was a country, it would have the 90th largest economy in the world. So that gives you an idea of the footprint uh, that can um, be produced, you know, by these types of, of corporations. And when they work together, um, and, and generally they do uh, work in unison going into emerging markets or big food, big snack, big soda. Right. Uh, they're, they're, they're working, you know, to establish markets. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful force. Um, it is interesting and encouraging to see in a very few places 
um, I was taking my pizza course on, on making homemade pizzas. I'm a I'm a pizza fanatic. Love it. Every today's uh, we're on a Friday, and and uh, when I'm home, it's Pizza Friday. Chef Doctor Mike's <laughs> making uh, homemade a crust, and we could talk about that because people think, oh, pizza, you know, it's horrible. You can't eat it. The the way I make it, it's actually one of the most healthful foods you can have. Now, having said that, if you want to order a delivery slice from an industrially produced pizza, that is one of the 10 worst foods on the surface of this earth that you could possibly eat. And so we, we talk about how we categorize foods. Well, you know, you're not just covered, you know, a pizza is not a pizza, a sandwich isn't a sandwich, a burger is not a burger. Um, you know, so we, we have to shift our perspective in how we even examine our food. And that's one of the things that we do, uh, one of the first things we do in culinary medicine is start looking at our foods simply in terms of, is it ultra processed food or is it not? Forget every other category you learned, forget your diet category, paleo, vegan, carnivore, <laughs> vegetarian, whatever, um, you know, forget saturated fat, just simply, and it's not a hard thing to do, but, but simply start separating it on the degree of processing. And in that simple step alone, if you cut down the ultra processed food, you're going to find yourself on the healthier, happier pathway. And it, it, as you said, like, that's the key word there. Um, reduce or cut down doesn't mean eliminate, right? Like um, to think that uh, a, a uh, ultra processed pizza from unnamed conglomerate <laughs> um, is one of the worst things you can have on the face of this planet. That's some strong words, uh, but I stand I by them. <laughs> yeah, but I can understand when I think about okay, um, everything is designed for productivity. You know, the the same would be said about uh, let's say sandwich shops, uh, another unnamed conglomerate uh, that's global. Uh, you know, as popularity grew, demand skyrocketed. Okay, we need to make this simpler, faster to, to, to produce. Um, and uh, so easy, a monkey can do it. And that's essentially uh, the, I want to say, the thought process behind a lot of the conventional developments that we've seen. It's, well, that's, the, that's the only reason. Well, certainly convenience, as you pointed out, I mean, that's a major thing. And some years ago, actually, the uh, CEO of uh, the, the company that owned Pizza Hut gave a talk on this very topic. And the sum result was he said, listen, we actually try to make a better tasting pizza by the standards that, that we use. But what we found is people don't want a better tasting pizza. They wanted a more convenient pizza. He said, so to hell with making a better pizza, just fake, focus on making it quicker, faster, easier. And the result was that when they focused on those things, those items, their sales skyrocketed. And I believe they're the, the second uh, largest you know, pizza chain in the country now behind Domino's. Um, and in tandem with the convenience factor though, and this was a book uh, that really exposed this, it was written by David Kessler, who was uh, head of the FDA some, some years ago. And it's called The End of Overeating in America, if, if anybody wants to read it. I, I love this stuff and I could tell it was written by a physician because like, you know, it was just study after study and pretty boring, um, <laughs> but very informative. Uh, and, I, and I appreciate all the work that, that David did on that. Um, but what he pointed out, which is striking, you know, what are one of the differences in ultra processed foods from 
the the pizza that I make versus that pizza that you get when you order. Well, that pizza that you order is, is literally an engineered food. And it's engineered to be what we term in, in academics, hyper palatable, which is a very polite, politically correct way of saying addictive. Um, <laughs> and and it, they actually are constructed to maximize what we call a bliss point. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't heard of it, but I can tell you that I've been suspicious for a very long time because uh, being the in the world that I'm in, and the type of person I am, I, I have realized that uh, uh, understanding how the chemicals in my brain and my body work um, are very critical uh, to uh, trying to understand the behaviors that uh, that I exhibit day in and day out. That could be uh, what I choose to eat and why. And um, and that's where some of those thought process came from is that, you know what, I think these are pretty addictive because when I eat this, I am feeling the sensations just shooting, you know, in, in my brain or in my body telling me like, this is amazing. And I can't wait for the next bite. Well, you, you're spot on Mike. So what a bliss point is, and it's different for every food. Um, and it, it is some scientists, for example, feel that the origin of all addictive behavior in a human species stems from our innate craving for salt. Because despite what some people think, you know, we didn't, we weren't vegetarian, our ancestors were not vegetarians who lived in trees and rode unicorns. They were omnivores. Uh, and that means that they ate meat when they could get it. They ate bugs. They eat whatever they could to survive. And as omnivores, uh, because a large portion of the diet is plant-based, well, we don't get enough salt. Carnivores get salt because they eat flesh, which contains a high uh, degree of sodium. Uh, anybody who's ever hunted and puts a salt lick out in the field and all the deer go to it knows exactly what I'm talking about. Herbivores seek out salt. Turns out omnivores too. Uh, if we look at some of our primate cousins, for example, uh, chimpanzees will seek out the inner bark of a certain type of palm tree because it's a reservoir of salt. And, and so we seek that out. It's built into our DNA as social primate omnivores uh, that we we have to uh, seek out uh, salt because otherwise we wouldn't have the necessary sodium before obviously modern times when we could put it on the table uh, to to exist to survive it's an essential element so uh, that that's one of the other uh, one that that we feel is has an evolutionary basis is sugar uh, if you and I are out in the Serengeti plains a hundred thousand years ago and uh, chef dr. Mike is there, uh, right behind you and you say, hey, that's a pretty tasty looking peach. And you grab it and you get this sort of burst of, of available sugars. And all of a sudden the saber tooth tiger, you know, comes out and you could run five steps faster because you got a little burst of sugar. Guess who's not dinner? You win, I lose. And those genes are then passed on. So wow. sugar, sugar is also something uh, that hits our dopaminergic reward center um, and functions in, in, in short in much the same way opiates do. And, and we've done a really good job of managing that in our, our current uh, society. Uh, so, so you have sugar and salt and fat gets into the mix because particularly saturated fats, what they do is they're like a carrier molecule. So, uh, you know, you can eat something and you're like, ah, that's a little too sweet or ah, that's too salty. I, I you know, I, I don't really like that. But when you put fat into the mix, 
you can increase the levels of sugar and salt um, without it seeming too salty or too sweet. And of course, the more sugar, the more salt, the bigger the buzz. So what they, uh, what food manufacturers do uh, in creating these bliss points, for example, is let's say some, let's say something like a potato chip, right? We like a salty potato chip or pretzel. Uh, so they combine how much fat can I add and how much sugar and how much salt, how much can I pack in there before you're like, ah, this is too, too greasy. It's too salty. It's too sweet. How much can I add in there and get the, what they call the bliss point, which is that maximum pleasure response to the dose of sugar, salt, and fat in combination? Now, of course, that's different for different foods. A, a donut, we might like to be more sweet. So that might have more sugar, maybe more fat, less salt, you know, et cetera. Uh, but they do that for all these different foods because my job as a food scientist in that arena is for somebody to buy you know, my donut or my potato chips and not yours. And the way that I can do that is by giving them the maximum food buzz, uh, you know, with each bite. And so that's how ultra processed foods are made hyper palatable. That is what they are constructed to do. In doing that, they're constructed for maximum, uh, maximum profit. So that involves maybe not choosing the, the most desirable ingredients, uh, right? I want to make it as delicious as I can, your perception, get that high bliss point, use the cheapest ingredients I can and keep it on the shelf as long as I can because shelf life equals profitability. Uh, if I can't keep it on the shelf and I'm throwing it away, um, I'm losing money. You know, as a professional chef, that, that was my big thing in the kitchen. You know, I, I get fresh things in. Um, they're not the canned things that sit on a shelf or they're not the ultra processed things. Th those fresh ingredients are going to go bad. I have to really work every day to use them and turn a profit in my restaurant. So, so that um, in a very long winded answer is what a bliss point is and why ultra processed foods are different in construction than the way nature made them. And, and in doing that, in, in constructing those bliss points, we do a very important thing to food. Um, I bet you didn't know that we'd be sharing the story of the matrix today, you know, um, but, okay. but it has to do with the food matrix. So, so the way I, I make, I explain it is, you know, everybody's heard about saturated fat and cholesterol and all these things that come in food, right? Those are nutrients and molecules and types of food. Um, those things are packaged. So the analogy is right. If you order a birdhouse from Amazon um, it shows up on your doorstep and you open a package, you get your birdhouse, use your birdhouse, right? But if Amazon didn't package again and the UPS guy just threw it on your doorstep, you might just get pieces of stuff. Or if they do a crappy job packaging it, it still might come in pieces or it's broken or it might even injure you with broken glass or, or splinters when you open it. So the packaging turns out to be pretty important, though we often don't think about it, right? If they couldn't package it and slap that label on there, you might, you might not even get to where it's supposed to be. So that packaging is the matrix. That's how nature puts together all these nutrients so that when we bite an apple, even though it has lots of glucose and fructose in there, the fructose does, isn't absorbed right away uh, because of the way it's packaged uh, in all those other kind of carbohydrate molecules. It's completely different than when you drink uh, a soda, you know, a, a, a beverage, which has free fructose that goes right into your bloodstream and causes your liver to start storing fat and actually starts to shut down the part of your brain that tells you not to eat or drink anymore. 
So two very different effects, even though the manufacturer could say fructose, yeah, we use fructose, but it's a, it's a completely natural molecule. That is true. That is not a word of a lie, but how it's packaged has a criticality in terms of our biological and physiological processes. Uh, when we make ultra processed foods, we destroy nature's matrix and then we reconstruct it as we need it. And there in that story of the matrix, lies, you know, one of the, the mechanisms uh, by which these ultra processed foods are so powerfully bad for us. You know, uh, when you put it that way, it's uh, it's just so alarming. <laughs> you know, uh, it, uh, everything you said, I think most Americans are somewhat aware of. Right. We've been slowly getting dosed information <laughs> as the decades go on. And it's uh, but we've been uh We've been uh, allowed the freedoms to still choose. Mm -hmm. As you know, like, okay, you've been a little more educated about this, but you still have the freedom to choose. Whatever you do is your choice at this point. And, but to hear um, the, the thorough explanation of engineered food, because that's what this is. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're engineering for the sake of maximum profits uh, and uh, disregarding long-term implications. And the same uh, can be seen across the entire spectrum of the world of industrialized food from, uh, from, you know, agriculture to the packaging, to the distribution uh, and it's big money. But so is big pharma. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of money there, too. So it seems like the average person can fall into this trap um, for much of their life. Right. From from eating horribly because they don't know necessarily any better to eventually. Falling ill with whatever the whatever it may be, and then having to turn to um, uh, to drugs that can kind of mitigate the, the symptoms long-term, but oftentimes people are so ingrained in the behavior, they really can't change the way they eat. They just, they, they desire these things so much. And I can understand, I went through it. I went through it myself. Um, two years ago at 32 years old, you have, I was told you have unusually high levels of cholesterol. That explains why I was having chest pains, numbness in my left arm at such a young age. It's, I've eaten horribly because these are the things I desired for so long and they taste so good. Uh, and convenience was uh, the, the facilitator in all of them. Hey, everyone, I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far. If you've learned something, smash the like, sub if you want to stick around. This episode was sponsored by GrassDoor.com. Canvas delivery made simple at your door in 45 minutes or less. Plus, you can save 40% on your first purchase. Use the code daily at checkout. Well, you know, it is, but it's it's not a fair choice to make when you don't have all the information. You're not making an informed choice is what I'm saying. And if people still want to eat it, and listen, you know, I grew up, uh, I was born in New York City. Uh, I grew up with my mom, uh, rest her soul, uh, you know, sharing that that New York slice as, a, as just a special thing. And if I go visit New York City tomorrow, I'll be damned if I'm not having a slice uh, of real New York pizza because there's nothing like it. And, and, and I'll probably have a real New York bagel to boot. Um, but that's the exception, you know, not the rule. And, and I know the consequences, you know, if I'm going to do that. Um, and I think, you know, one of our missions, one of my missions in culinary medicine, 
people make their own choice, but let me give you the information and then you can make it. And if you say, hey, I can't make a choice because I'm so addicted to this, I need some help, then hey, I have some strategies to help you. I'm here to help. If you say, to heck with you, you know, I'm just like a, a you know, if, if you were my a, a heart patient and you said, thanks so much, Chef Dr. Mike, but you know what? Um, I want to keep smoking my cigarettes each day. That's fine. That's your choice. Um, and I respect that. But as long as you know the information and you make the informed choice, then it's really your choice. And so, you know, my goal is to empower people to make those choices and whatever they choose is fine. It's their, it's their lives, not mine. Um, but I, I want to give a couple of quick statistics and then a story to highlight your point about the, the food pharma connection. So, uh, and here's some, some startling statistics. We have a pandemic of type two diabetes. Um, driven by obesity. 90% of all cases of type 2 diabetes can be prevented by lifestyle modifications like culinary medicine approach, exercise, etc. Not Chef Dr. Mike's opinion. Go look on the Harvard website. That's where that comes from. 80%, 80% of all heart attacks can be presented by the same. Not Chef Dr. Mike's opinion, American Heart Association website. Go look it up. Uh, you know, so... Why is the only thing we see endlessly on TV another commercial for another type 2 diabetic pill, injection, you know, whatever? Um, I, I'll give you some insight. And uh, I, I was working with a friend of mine who was a chef who developed diabetes. And he took the medicine when it came out. And eventually, as a chef, as somebody who knows food and a friend of mine, um, he got to the point where he didn't need the medicine anymore. Uh, he had controlled it, what we call diet controlled type 2 diabetes. And so he'd done an initial TV program uh, highlighting that, uh, which was well received. And so then he uh, invited me to, to help him on his, his next show. And I was like, well, sure, you know, I'm cardio. I know I have a lot of contacts in pharma. I did a lot of clinical research for uh, coronary stents and those types of devices. So I approached my contacts at, at uh, these pharmaceutical companies and whatnot, who are always telling me how they want to help patients and whatever they can do to help everyone, you know, et cetera. And so I referred him to my friend and said, hey, this guy's putting together a program. Uh, if you want to buy airtime, if you just want to support it, it'd be great. The crickets were chirping, Mike, in terms of, of interest in giving people a non-pharmacological way uh, to address and complement their treatment for type 2 diabetes that was not pharmacologic. However, my friend also had a, sort of almost like a, um, a food truck that he would drive around to different places and, and offer free testing for diabetes. So kind of like a mobile you know, testing area. Hey, what's your sugar? And, you know, oh, gosh, you know, your sugar is 212 and you're an undiagnosed diabetic sort of thing. Um, they were happy to stand in line to support that. Why? That's new customers. Because the first thing that's going to happen when somebody's a newly diagnosed diabetic is, and appropriately so, they're going to start to go get treatment, which they should. Uh, right. And that means one of their, their pharmaceuticals. I got to tell you, that was a kick in the balls to me. Um, you know, I was, this was years ago, and, and, and I had a naivete that I am embarrassed to admit where I was like, I know these folks and they're, they're good people. And, you know, I, I have dinner with them and we talk about, you know, things that, and, and, and it wasn't necessarily all just the people I was talking to, of course, they're executives and stuff, but the uniform lack of interest in anything that didn't 
you know, pad the bottom line, um, really rocked my worldview. I was like, holy cow, you know, when people talk about it's just the money, at least in my limited experience, I can only speak for myself. It was. And, and when I see these commercials about, you know, how they care and they're here to help. And I was like, you know, it's, it's that old joke, right? You know, the knock on the door. Uh, we're from the government. And we're, we're here to help. And I live in Montana and you can ask any Native American how that went for them. So, um, you know, it, 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 it was nine months. And then the, the dichotomy when they could get on something that was going to help diagnose new diabetics. Oh, yeah. They couldn't, give, they couldn't give money fast enough. So, yeah, yeah that that I, I think you, you that that little story probably and those statistics, along with what you said, um, probably tells more than, you know, hours and hours of, of studies could ever reveal. I mean, it's uh, what you know. What can we say? It makes the, the, world, the world go works. round. Yeah, makes the world go round, and um, and it's been like this for a long time. It's just now we have um, uh, different forms of it. It used to be well, governments, it, and yeah. and we have people like you, which I appreciate. Thank you so much for having me on today, helping me get the word out. And then there are, you know, there are forces we can't address, right? Because if you're healthier then that's in the interest of an insurance company. So whoever insures you, whether it's a private insurer, whether it's the United States government, um, if you're healthier and you live longer and you're healthier longer, that's money in their pocket. So we can speak that language. Uh, regenerative agriculture, um, there are farms that have been done in Brazil that show that we can produce wholesome, real, delicious food in a way that, it, that helps heal the environment um, so it doesn't have to be industrial monocrop agriculture that destroys things with, you know, herbicides and pesticides and puts them in our, our body, et cetera. We, we don't have to farm that way. Uh, there's an interesting study done in, in Hawaii that looked at the way the, the native uh, Hawaiians had farmed the land, you know, terracing and so on and so forth, irrigation. And their estimation was that using the traditional methods of farming uh, of the native Hawaiians could feed three times the population that Hawaii has now. So it's certainly, it certainly can be done. And again, this data, uh, I, and I'm, I'll be honest, I didn't know about this until, you know, um, many years ago when I started getting into culinary medicine and pursuing it. Um, but this goes back to the seventies, you know, in, in Japan and now is known by a bunch of other terms as well. Uh, no, no till, etc. Soil regeneration uh, in in Australia, and and I have colleagues that that and friends that practice this in the United States. But the idea, and I believe that that the only way to feed our population is with our current industrial monocrop agriculture. I, I do not believe, based on the science that I have read and the people that I have talked to, and the examples that are out there, like we talked about in in the one in Brazil. Uh, that, that that is a truth either. However, if you as a CEO then get out and say, uh, oh, this is what we're concerned about, and it's really just a PR lie, and you're being totally disingenuous, I do have a problem with that. I don't have any problem with the CEO. That's what they're supposed to do. They answer to shareholders. I get that. So our job is to say, hey, this is what the, the people are demanding. I'm, I, I remember a similar type of discussion that surrounded the emergence of organic foods and vegetables. And, and people were saying, 
in industry, well, nobody's going to pay more for this stuff because there's no study showing it's better. So there's no market for this. So we're not going to we're not going to do it. And yet, because people demanded it, you know, Walmart is now the largest distributor in the U.S. of organic food uh, because they carry it on their shelves. Not because Walmart cares about whether you and I are healthy, but because Walmart can make a profit because that's what people want to buy. So if we can educate people and we can empower people and, and we use literally our power of the purse to say, this is what I want to buy. And, you know, it may cost 25 cents more, um, but I'm going to buy it this way because I, I like how it's made. Um, I like what it contains. I, um, what it doesn't contain is important. Whatever that rationale may be for that individual, um, then, then you drive, uh, you know, those corporate decisions because then as a CEO, I got to figure out how to, how to get into that changing market and, and right. get my share. And so really, though, in some ways, you know, our choices are limited and, and yes, we are manipulated. Um, we haven't even got into the whole idea of advertising and how advertising aimed at very young children influences all their decisions through adulthood. That, that psychology is very well known to the food manufacturers as well. Great uh, book on that and many books uh, by Marion Nestle, a very famous uh, nutritionist. Um, originally with uh, out of Hershey, um, Hershey professor, University of Penn State. Uh, and, and she does, uh, has done a wonderful, made a career really kind of writing and exposing about that. If anybody's interested to, to, to read those, those works. Um, but, you know, we do, you know, um, if we can empower ourselves to make those decisions, one, we control our own health then. We control our own destiny. Um, and then two, every purchase we make is, is having an impact. And, you know, um, I'm talking to you and people are going to listen to your podcast and we change a few minds out there and they tell a few friends. Um, then, then we start to make a difference. Um, you know, Kraft Macaroni and Cheese is not going to get on board and, 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 you know, promote Chef Dr. Mike across the country. We understand that. Um, it's, it's much more a grassroots approach, but that doesn't mean, you know, that we can't change it. Like I said, Walmart sells organic vegetables. 30 years ago, people would have said, you're, you're crazy. Get out of here. They, they, nah, that's never going to fly. Right. Too expensive. And, uh, eventually people wanted it. The, well, the question kind of comes up in my mind, uh, as I did reading, uh, on organic foods for like, I'm in California. So based on California law, it's, uh, what was written and I would like some clarification from you if you can help is uh, it's considered organic if they stop spraying a month before uh, harvest. And it's a, it's a little, it's a, it was a little portion that I had read and I said, well, that's really, that's really dishonest. It's still being sprayed. It's still uh, it, it just means that they're flushing out much of those toxins um, a month prior to harvesting so that maybe the, the trace amounts or the parts per million are much lower. Now, so I don't know. Uh, I know for, for like the USDA organic label. So I don't know about specifically for California. That's fine. State. Um, but, but that, that is a general practice actually for a lot of agriculture. So uh, that would be conventional. We spray and then a certain amount of days before your harvest, you, you can't spray anymore because you can't bring it right. But there are still high residual levels that are then checked and, and they have to fall within certain boundaries. 
Um, and, and for example, I mean, organic fruits and vegetables actually often have very trace levels of pesticides on them, not because they were ever sprayed, but because of airborne, uh, you know, if you could watch a crop duster, if I'm growing a, organics in a field next to you and you crop dust your, your conventional, it's going to get onto my stuff. Uh, but the levels are much, much lower. Other studies show that the nutrient densities are higher um, in the organics, but uh, my understanding is that the organics cannot have any of that um, in the process of them being grown to get that USD or USDA organic label. Now, having said that, there are some more tricks uh, up the sleeves in terms of organics because you'll see things that say 100% organic. So let's say the apple is 100% organic. Okay, we, we get that. It was organ organically raised, et cetera. Uh, and then you'll see uh, maybe an apple snack, a dried apple snack, and it'll just say uh, organic on it. Well, that saying organic, if it doesn't say 100% organic, doesn't mean it's all organic. It means that only like 70% of the ingredients used in production of that have to be organic. So, so the label, yeah. I've actually, you know, uh, talked to a number of, of lawyers and legal friends and asked, said, you know, can can we have a conversation about labeling? And and to a, a uniform T, the response I've got is, oh, no, I mean, that is its own thing. It is so complex. And there are all these loopholes built in so that what you read is not what you read. So even when you look at organic, if it just says organic, not 100 percent. But if it just says organic, doesn't mean it's all organic. That's the way our label laws work. Right. I, uh, from my, my wife was telling me the same thing about uh, when something says uh, uh, natural ingredients. Uh, she, she had made a comment about that. She, she was saying, like, if it says natural ingredients, it's only probably some uh, based on some of the reading she had done. Uh, you, ultimately, when we're talking about um, food and we're talking about um, how to stay healthy the i i find it the most the the most reasonable way to go about it is growing what i can so i've been for a number of years and um there's there's some joy associated with the experience uh giving life to something that returns life back to me when i consume it you know it's yeah. very special to me um but uh, I feel like long term, there's got to be smarter ways uh, to to cultivate uh, for an entire nation, much like what you were saying, uh, what was discovered in Brazil. Uh, some of these things may probably take decades for implementation. Uh, but if there's quantifiable data showing that this is a much better way, um, can we find data on what the transition would cost companies to to make that happen? Well, it's interesting. Um, for companies, depending on what they produce, it could be catastrophic. So I'll give you an example. Uh, a, a friend of mine, and I think I actually wrote about them in one of the Psychology Today uh, uh, columns, and they're grain farmers in North Dakota, I believe. And they used to produce their wheat conventionally. And then they uh, started to learn about the soil. And so, um, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine about the bacteria in our gut. Everyone knows about probiotics and got to have that healthy bacteria. 
Well, you could think of the, the soil as the gut of the earth and it needs to be healthy too. And that means it has to have the, the right kinds of bacteria and the right nourishment uh, to provide the right environment for these plants to grow. And when we spray pesticides and herbicides, it turns out that we take that just the top of that that soil, which is this living kind of network of fungi and plants, et cetera, and, and microbes, and, and we make it sterile, which is why the plants end up uh, requiring higher and higher doses of fertilizers, et cetera, to grow is because the soil is dead. I, I call them green deserts. Uh, you, you look down and you see green things, but you won't see anything else alive um, <laughs> down there. There's, there's no mice, there's no earthworms, uh, there's no birds in the fields, et cetera, wow. uh, because of the heavy use of the pesticides and the, and the herbicides and the fertilizers. And, and so what he had to do to get into the regenerative agriculture, which he felt from a personal standpoint was where he needed to go because he's like, I need to provide the best grains that I can to provide the best nourishment to people and the best product. So he made a personal decision to do that. But he told me it, took, it takes about five years because you really, you literally got to nurture the soil back because when you stop and you stop adding things, it's kind of like a junkie going cold turkey, right? The system is used to this. It's become dependent on it. And all of a sudden you take it away. And so the soil is sterile. So he said there's a transition period for the farmer of about five years where it's tough uh, because you're not going to get the yields. If you make it through that transition period, he says, you know, right now um, I'm getting yields that were better than when I was using fertilizers and GMOs and stuff like that. Uh, he said, and my profit margin is better. He said, because as a farmer, I don't have to buy a special GMO type of crop. As a farmer, I don't have to buy pesticides and herbicides. As a farmer, I'm not spending all this money on fertilizer. So that means when I'm getting the same price and I'm not paying for those things, I'm making more money. And I personally believe returning more of the profits or more of the share of the profits to the people like the farmers and, and you know, the uh, people who practice animal husbandry and, and produce our food from the earth. I don't find that a bad thing. Not at all. They, you know, it's um, it's. I, I'm a firm believer, especially uh, being a small business and entrepreneur, um, that if you're doing something that's worthwhile, uh, you should you should charge what you're worth. Absolutely. Um, it uh, and of course, there's always going to be people that want cheaper, and there is a product for that. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, someday in the future, we, you know, hopefully, we may all have access to these. Uh, better foods that's higher in uh, nutrient density, that's uh, safer to consume, that doesn't lead to more uh, uh, illnesses that we're seeing in such an abundant country of ours. Uh, we're abundant of everything, including illness, which, mm. <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous because, we, you know, we have so much of everything else, but it happens to create this cycle that leads us back into. We just have to be first at everything, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I was going through that article, your most recent post on psychology today. Um, it was called, let's see here. It was called the procuring the unconventional. And you talk in great detail here about, um, 
how we're kind of ass backwards, um, how the farms have been operating with livestock. And we've seen these images. We've seen the videos that have uh, made it onto major news networks. It's rare, uh, yeah. but we, we have seen them. And the treatment is quite awful. And through it all, I mean, some of the things that you define here, uh, specifically like uh, the concentrated animal feeding operations. So for anybody that doesn't know, if you want to quickly explain what that means... Sure. Those are what we term in, in the CAFOs, or, or as you say, concentrated animal feeding operations. So those are those, uh, in short, those feedlots that everyone has seen on TV, as you show, where the cattle just, you know, crammed together for the last weeks of their lives, where they're, you know, fattened up on grains. They're not allowed to, to move. They live in horrible, stressful conditions. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I, I eat everything. I'm a chef. Um, that's what I do. Uh, but I'm very picky, uh, and it's what we call in our study of culinary medicine, it's the Hogwarts portion of, our, of what we learn. It's the <laughs> art of sorcery or sourcing our ingredients. I won't eat anything that comes out of those types of lots. Um, I, you know, I'm very picky that, you know, the animals have to be treated with dignity, raised a certain way. Um, I feel that, you know, uh, it makes for a different product. Uh, maybe it's all in my head, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, but, but I certainly, you know, remember going many, many decades ago, going hunting, deer hunting for, and we would keep the venison over the winter and, and, and use it. And I remember the hunters telling me that, you know, you had to hit the deer in one shot. And I thought it was about being humane. And what he said was, no, he said, what happens, and this was an old time guy, you know, and he could have been like on 1893 or something. I mean, he, you wow. know, he knew all the. The, the, the crafty ways of the mountain man uh, where I was. And he's like, no, when you got to track it and the animal stressed um, before it dies, he said, it makes the meat taste bad. And I, and I thought uh. to myself and I said, well, that makes sense because I know all the things that happen when people are under stress in terms of the stress hormones being released and how that changes things. And, and they're around and they're flooding every fiber of your being. Uh, when you're under that life and death stress, uh, you, you know, and so now we're taking those animals that we're going to eat, which are often sick when they go in because of what they've been fed, and we're going to stress them to the nth degree even more. I mean, if you want to look at it from a, a a purely hedonistic point of view, it's like that's not a very good product. That's not something I want to eat. And and you know the the advice I give is. Don't get anything you want to eat from a place you would never want to visit. Ah, that's that's good advice. For me, you know, again, as a, as a chef, as someone who is intimately in touch with the food, when the food's produced that way, there's no respect for it. And I think, you know, I one of the, the important principles of culinary medicine is connecting you to the roots of your food uh, in many ways. And that, that does cover all those things that we talked about and connecting you to the food and, and how that food got there. And as you said earlier, Mike, which was spot on, whether it's an animal, plant or a fungus, something gave its life so that you can have life. And, you know, people say, well, you know, Chef Dr. Mike, what's the one ingredient you, you always have? What do you always have to, you know, serve or what always has to be in, in something that you make? And it's simple. It's an ounce of gratitude, a little thanks and a little respect for what just gave its life for you. 
Um, and, and even to the point where and it, it's not a religious thing. I don't, I don't care if you do the Lord's Prayer. You thank the animal. Um, you thank, you know, your ancestors, spirit, whatever it is. But to just take not even 30 seconds before you eat and, 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 and give a little gratitude, it's going to change the neuro, neural network in your head and how you're experiencing that meal. And it turns out those have health effects as well. And when you when you do that simple gratitude practice, it has positive health effects. I believe uh, you're absolutely right about that. From personal experience, um, I I have seen that uh, the fabric of reality responds to gratitude. The universe responds in, in equal proportion, um, and it's um, it fascinates me every single time. But well, you know, one of the, the fundamentals, uh, well, maybe we, we, we end it here, but, you know, it, it's funny. We talk about culinary medicine. We're going to end with quantum mechanics, but they're a great book written by Carlos Ravelli. And he kind of distilled down kind of the reality. What, what do we know? What are the, the three truths of, of quantum mechanics? What is, what is it about the universe that, that we say we know, as, as you were saying? And this goes to exactly what you said. He, he said, you know, we live in a universe of relationships, not a universe of things. Nothing exists in isolation. So we only know an electron because it bangs into something else. And it's that interaction that defines the electron. Once there's no interaction, that, inter that electron actually disappears from reality and becomes you know, a probability equation. So the universe, the very fabric of the universe is what you just said. It's it's about these relationships and it only exists. We only exist in a universe of relationships. We are not isolated things, which is ten, how we tend to, in many instances, live our lives and certainly how we experience our food. And culinary medicine's all about changing that relationship and perspective. That's great. And um, I think that's a good start and a good ending to our conversation. <laughs> I think um, I think I would love to have you back on again because there's so much more that we just couldn't touch up on. For yeah. for example, uh, you know what was in that column for that recent upload that you had talking about certain fats being present or non-detectable uh, based on how the animals have been raised and how they've been fed, and uh, that speaks to a lot of the um, a lot of you know let's say cholesterol issues and and many other things that. Uh, obviously I have a personal interest in that based on my own health, but I know others would be interested in as well. We, there's other parts here that I couldn't get to like inter you're an interventional cardiologist. And I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, uh, I, obviously the thought was like, okay, if somebody's having heart problems, severe heart problems, it's, you know, it's time for chef, Dr. Mike to step in and, you know, Yep. change those behaviors or at least uh, encourage better ones uh, to be able to get somebody back to heart health. Um, I uh, genuinely and sincerely appreciate all of your time uh, oh, for, for coming you, on. This is great. I definitely love to come back, man. Um, it's, it's just been a, a, a cool, great time. Um, I appreciate you giving me a platform to share, you know, culinary medicine. Um, that's what I'm all about. Um, if I can mention the website where folks can go learn a little bit more about me, uh, www.chefdrmike.com. Um, you can see the course that we teach at the University of Montana. There's recipes. Um, 
Uh, as I said, I'm not famous, so I do all my own uh, emails and, and social media. So uh, feel free. I'd love to hear from folks. And uh, if I'm a call or busy, just give me a day or two to get back to you because um, I'm not famous. <laughs> you don't have a secretary yet. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, man. It's This makes you much more personable. And I think uh, there's a lot of people that can learn from what you're uh, what you have shared today. A lot of people can fee- uh, at least have a sense of comfort in knowing that um, that is an immediate answer, changing your diet. And then obviously how you pointed towards uh, um, uh, what is it? The uh, National Association of uh, Heart, uh, the Heart Heart Association. Yeah, that that website that talked about like eighty percent and yeah. Harvard that ninety percent of type two diabetes and yeah, we cover you know all those sort of statistics and information. Um, but you know, one thing you mentioned Psychology Day, for example, I put things out, I talk about it, and you always see what I used in terms of the source materials. It was this scientific study because I want you to be able to say. I don't buy that. Read the article and say, yeah, I agree with you, Chef Dr. Mike or Chef Dr. Mike. I, I, I don't get the same. I don't reach the same conclusion. That's OK. We, we should just all have the information and then the ability to make our own decisions. Right. And to be able to change your mind because that's OK. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know? I, I certainly have um, along the way. I mean, that that's that's ev- I like to think that's evolution. Um, you know, uh, that's how yeah. we evolve as human beings to be open and, and be changed. Right. As you were saying, the universe is never static and it's always telling us something. Unfortunately, I've often had to learn by two by four karma where the universe has had to hit me with a two by four where I said, okay, now I get it. <laughs> right. Well, that's good. As long as you get it at the end. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. Ah, many of us are like that. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. I hope you enjoyed having, uh, Dr. Michael Fenster on, and we'll have you on again. Love it. Thanks, man.